Jesus, yes. You know, you can say Jesus, and it can mean like many different things. Like Jesus, or Jesus. I digress. Anyway, so the next I am revelation that we're working through in John's gospel is in the context of the last Passover dinner that Jesus will be celebrating with his disciples. And um, there's, this, there's this strange vibe that's taking place in, uh, during, during the meal. Uh, the disciples, they know something's up because something feels a little bit off. In fact, chapter 13, Jesus, he, he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, the washing of uh, your guests' feet was done by the lowest of the servants of the households. And so this right away has kind of raised some red flags for the disciples. In fact, Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, Pete, if I don't wash your feet, then you've got no part of me. Then he's like, well, wash everything. He says, well, you don't need everything washed. You know, you're already clean. And so Jesus is really teaching them something that goes just beyond, you know, the, the, the greatest in the kingdom is the least here in this world and, and about, about servant, um, servants, uh, the heart of a servant. The heart of, of what it is to sacrifice. And yet the disciples, they're, they're not fully grasping it yet. Now, it's been, it's been a few years up until this point that they've been walking with Jesus and, and following him. You know, they called, he called them. Hey, come follow me. Hey, come follow me. Come follow me. And, and they did. And so they've been through a lot with him. They've been through the ups and downs of following the Son of God. Last week, we looked at the story of Lazarus. And when Jesus was ready to go to Bethany to see the family, Thomas was like, well, we might as well go with him so we can die with him. And so following Jesus wasn't like this, this, whoo-hoo, I'm following Jesus. It, was, it could be dangerous. They realized the risks involved. It wasn't all mountaintops, glitter, and unicorns. There are times where they just didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, what was being uh, said, what was being done. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark, there's times where the disciples are afraid to ask Jesus what he means. Now, during the supper, Jesus tells the disciples, listen, guys, someone's going to betray me. And so this has got to feel like a punch in the gut to them because they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And Peter sends this message to John. Ask him who. And Jesus goes through this thing and, and who, the who is revealed. It's Judas. And Jesus tells Judas, what you're about to do, just go and do it. And he gets up and he leaves the table. And the disciples, they still don't understand what's going on. They think that maybe he's gone out to, to uh, give money to the poor or something. They, they don't, they haven't grasped the weight of what is about to happen. And then he tells them this. He says, guys, I'm, I'm going to a place and you can't follow me. Which has to be for them like this, this very troubling moment in a very awkward, weird evening of celebrating the Passover. Because they have been following Jesus through thick and thin. They've been following Jesus. They, when, when the rabbi asks for a disciple to follow, 
the rabbi, the disciple does. And they follow the rabbi everywhere. And they watch everything the rabbi does because the idea is for the disciple to become like the rabbi. And it's not the rabbi who says, you can no longer follow me unless the disciple is flunking out. But the, the, the rabbi wouldn't pick a disciple if he knew that that possibility existed. And so this statement, wait a minute, we've been following you. What do you mean that we can't follow you? This goes against cultural norm that they can't follow Jesus. They've been following him everywhere. That's what disciples do. They follow the rabbi. And Jesus now tells them, I'm going to a place and you guys can't follow me. And they're very confused. In fact, the story says that their hearts were troubled. Jesus' heart is troubled. Peter speaks up. He's like, "Mm -mm, I'm I'm, going to follow you, man. And I love Jesus because I, I think he just looked at Pete with compassion. He's like, oh, Pete, my bud. Before this night's over, you're going to deny me three times. And so just hearing all of these things that are taking place during this meal, things are about to get really intense. The disciples have really no idea what's going on. They're, they're, they're troubled. They're confused. One of the 12 has left, and they're not really sure why. Their hearts must have sank when they, when the first when they heard that somebody's going to betray Jesus, and next he's going to a place where they can't follow him. And Jesus looks at them, and he knows he, he loves this this ragtag group of, of his followers, and he's going to minister to them. He's going to encourage them. He's going to try to build them up in the midst of. Well, what's about to take place because it's going to be horrible because the Son of God is going to go to the cross. And so by the time we get to chapter 14 of John's gospel, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says this. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. There's a lot going on in this, these four verses. It's Jesus' desire to build and to instill strength in these, these disciples. In the very first part of the first verse, when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, it's, it, it's, it comes off as a command. It comes off as Jesus telling them with resolve and conviction, don't get worked up over this. Don't let your hearts be troubled. But I'm sure it's said with, with the compassion and the love of, of a, a rabbi, of a close friend, of almost a father figure. And that statement, don't let your hearts be troubled, has resonated through the centuries for the church over and over again. We could, we could sit on the couch Every night, watch the news, read the paper, and the things that we see, the things that we read, the, the, the things that we're witnessing, we can recite this over and again to ourselves, and it's as relevant today as it was then. I'm not going to let my heart be troubled. I'm not going to let my heart be troubled. Because reality is we live in an age of anxiety. Terrorism is the norm. People killing people. In our little town of Cheshire, they had a whole big town meeting. Lock your cars. We can't catch these guys. They're, they're slick. 
They're stealing things. And, and how, do, how do they? It's, it's so random. Women getting their purses snatched. Random. And then if, you, if you're attuned to politics at all, <laughs> oh my goodness, that'll give you agita. And, it, and it, it, I have my own political views, and, and I will never discuss them or preach them from the pulpit, ever. That's my promise to you. And I will never demean anyone, private or publicly, about their political views. But it doesn't matter what side of the aisle that you, you sit on. It, it seems that, well, they're just stupid. And it's no longer come to a point of disagreeing over governance of our country. Each side believes the other side is just downright evil. Like the, 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 uh, the coming of wanting to end our United States the way we know it. Cost of living is going up. International crisis is the norm and not the exception. And let's not to mention all the personal things that we have to deal with every single day of our lives. The ups and the downs and the, and the troubles and the, and the anxieties that we experience. We live in a time that's just filled with anxiousness. And then if that wasn't enough, we have this tendency as humans, to, to borrow trouble. We have a tendency uh, to imagine that the worst is going to happen before anything at all happens. We use a lot of mental and emotional resources thinking about things that don't exist and that may never come to fruition at all. As, as a kid, I hated the dentist. Like, hated the dentist. I think I still do, but I'm older now. And I can remember, and, and I had nothing really to, I, I, I don't remember like why, but I remember I hated the smell. I hated that high pitch. And then the smoke that comes off your teeth. And I don't remember like pain. But I remember like hating the needles. Oh, this isn't going to hurt. They lie. Straight out lie to my face. And so I used to get so worked up over what was going to happen at the dentist. Like crying, shaking. I remember there was a few times I would finally get to the dentist chair. And he would look at my mom and go, I I can't work on him. (laughs) And I would go home because I just was just so taken by what might be happening to me before anything happened at all. Fear of what may happen can many times be worse than the reality of what is taking place. Jesus tells us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Unless, of course, you go into the dentist. I don't think he's there. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them shudder. Don't, don't, don't quiver with fear. And then he tells us in the second half of the verse, you believe in God, believe also in me. And he's talking to Jews who believe in God. They believe all of this. This is their history all the way up to Malachi. This is the history of those people. They know God. They know how God created in the beginning. They know the story of Noah. They know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
They know the story of, of Jericho. They know the story of the 40 years in the desert. They know about the manna. They know about the quail. They know about the water from the rock. They know about the tent of meeting and how the cloud would rest upon it when the presence of the Lord was there. They know all of these things about God. This, these, um, the amazing power of God. They understand this, this idea of sovereignty, that God is in all and, and about all and always with them. Jesus says, you, you believe in God. Believe in me. Because the two are one and the same. The same power that is in God the Father is the same power that is in God the Son. There's no separation of the two. Jesus is the revelation of God here on earth. Colossians 1, chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that says the Son is the visible image of the invisible God. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. Faith in the Father is, in, in any real meaningful sense, is not separate from faith in Jesus because they are one and the same. Now, I don't want you to miss this. They had faith in God. They saw the power of God in the plagues and how Moses led Israel out of Egypt. They, 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 they understand all that. And Jesus is telling them, I am that power. I am that power. God, and no matter what you're going to see, no matter what you're going to experience, I am that power. I was the one that separated the Red Sea. I was the one that gave you food for 40 years in the desert. I was the one that caused Jericho to fall. I was the one that spoke creation into existence. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And in verse 2, it says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so... But I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. In the, in the no matter what that life throws at us, no matter how hard it gets, and, and let's be honest, it gets hard sometimes. No matter what, we are not orphaned. We are not left alone. We are not abandoned. Each and every person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, he has, a, he has prepared an eternal place in his kingdom for you. Our names have been written in this thing called the book of life. And it doesn't get erased. He has prepared a place he acknowledges each and every one of us who put our faith in his son. We are residents of the kingdom. We live in this, this already and not yet we, we are residents of the kingdom, but there's a not yet kingdom that we have yet to see. And there are many rooms. And what he's kind of referring to is this idea that there is room for each and every person that will follow the sun. The kingdom doesn't run out of space. You know, whether you can, whether people can put it into words or not, whether we believe it or not, I believe that in each and every person, there's a longing for something more. And you just look around, and even within the church, we're, we're always looking for something, something more. There's a longing for security. There's a longing to, to be loved no matter what. There's a longing that this world will always fall short in supplying for us. Because it's a longing for eternity. 
God has hardwired this thing into each and every person. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11, he, he said he has set eternity into each one of our hearts. So there's something within us that can only be filled by God. That only could be filled by the truth of who he is. And what is unsatisfied here in this life can only be satisfied through faith in Christ. And he is preparing a place for that for those who are faithful. Not for those who follow all the rules perfectly, for not those who show up to church every Sunday, which you should anyway. Not for those who can regurgitate chapter and verse like it was just second nature to them. For those who, get this, for those who have said yes to Jesus. That's the faithful. That's the faithful. He prepares a place. And see, and therein lies the beginnings of an untroubled heart, knowing that, man, there's so much more than this. There's way more than what we see here today. And that we are guaranteed it through Jesus. Verses three and four, it says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So here's the promise of Jesus that this, this, these verses go way beyond just our physical death and going to heaven. So, so I believe that um, if I went to sleep this evening and didn't get up, that I would be with Christ in, in, in heaven. But we have to understand that Jesus is returning here to earth. And when he returns, he puts this whole big mess all back together again. And, it, and it's made right. It's made fulfilled. It's made back to the original garden. And our place has already been prepared. We got, we got, a, we got our own little acre of land just waiting for us. The kingdom is plotted out. Our name is known, our future mapped. Because remember that, that heaven, the place where we go when we die, here during this time, this, this, this physical body, when it dies, my spirit goes to this place called heaven. That's not the final place. We don't spend eternity floating around like wisps of clouds or smoke in this, this I don't know, playing harps and things like that. Because the scripture is clear that Jesus returns, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and he puts creation back to the original plan that God had in the beginning. And we will have resurrected bodies. This, this thing will be different. I will have abs instead of an ab. Beautiful flowing hair. You laugh. You're not going to recognize me. But chapter, uh, chapter 15 in, in um, second chron- or second, or no, 1 Corinthians, the second half of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 35, it talks about how this, 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 this perishable thing will be turned to something imperishable. That means, that means this, this is going to change. And it talks about how flesh and blood, as we know it, can't enter into that kingdom. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, it says that our lowly bodies will be transformed to, like to, to his, Jesus, his glorious body. So when Jesus 
uh, rose from the dead, there was something different about him. Like he can walk through walls and just appear and do all kinds of cool things. That's, that's the glorious body that we are going to have. That doesn't sound like wisps of smoke playing on the clouds with a harp to me. There's something that's going to take place that earth is going to be restored and we will become part of this, this new earth, this new kingdom here. We can only speculate on how awesome it's going to be, but I have to admit it's going to be awesome. The, the scripture talks about you know, roads paved with gold. And, and I, don't, I don't believe that there's going to be roads paved with gold. It's just, I, I think that really points to the fact that even gold is going to be worthless. Because we will be in the presence of the Lord. Paul got a little taste of eternity when he, um, when he said uh, in 2 Corinthians that he had this vision. And he was taken up into the third heaven. And he wasn't sure if it was just like a dream or a vision or if God actually took him to that place. Uh, but he, but he, as he describes it, he says, well, only God knows. God, God knows what, what I experienced. But in chapter 12, he said he heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. That's the place that Jesus has prepared for us. It will be nothing like we have ever experienced. And yet, I just imagine that it will be so familiar to us. Jesus tells his disciples, guys, right now where I'm going, you can't go. But you know where, the way of where I'm going. You got to love Thomas. Thomas is like, you know, Jesus, things are getting a little freaky for me right now. Look, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And I don't believe Thomas has said it like, oh, Jesus. We don't know the way you're going. I think he's like, you know, you've been talking all, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know how to get there? And then the I am revelation and the I am invitation of Jesus. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus said, I am, Thomas, the way and the truth and the life. Jesus just didn't come to point us in the direction of God. Jesus didn't come and say, okay, hey, listen, if you go down this way, take a right over there, God's waiting for you. I'm sure you're going to find him. He, he's not Google Maps. He's not Waze, the, the, the app. To, to figure out how to get to a place. He came as God's revelation, the personification of what, what is invisible. Jesus is. He gives us the ability to enter into a relation, relationship with the Father that is, is present today, real, accessible to all who would put their faith in him, and relevance a relationship with God has relevance through every fiber of our lives. Jesus takes us by the hands. He strengthens us. He journeys with us. He guides us. And he accompanies us. 
in Jesus that we in Jesus we know that God is not distant. He's not some magical creature. He's not some crabby old man uh, standing in some throne with a long white beard, just just waiting to thump us when we mess up. Jesus is inviting us to be with Him, to journey with Him, to become His child. He invites us into this relationship with the Father. He's the way into the relationship with the Father. And he is truth, the way and the truth, which is very different from the way that the teachers of his day uh, were living their lives. See, the religious people claimed to be protectors of the truth. They spoke the truth. They taught the truth. They said, this is the way you're supposed to live. Here are the rules, and you all are failing miserably in the rules. This is the truth of what God expects from you. And yet their lives were bitter. They were jealous of each other. They were eager for personal gain. They were divisive and very condescending and condemning to the people that looked to them for help. What did Jesus say? You, you, you Pharisees, you travel miles to look for one convert. You do nothing to help them. In fact, you make them twice the sons of hell you are. Jesus is the personification of truth. The truth that he came to live and that he came to teach. See, it's one thing for somebody to, to point to the truth. To say, this is truthful. And this is, this is good. And, and this is important to, to get a hold of. But Jesus, his life, his being was truth because what he was, what he spoke, what he taught, and what he lived lined up perfectly. There was absolutely no, no stumbling. There was absolutely no hypocrisy. It all lined up perfectly. Because of the life that he lived, he is the absolute truth. There is absolute truth, and that absolute truth is Jesus Christ. And the way he lived and the words he said had no separation. And for Jesus, truth isn't some like high ideal that we're all trying to strive for. It's not just this set of principles that seem like a good thing to follow. Like we're trying to attain something. Jesus, the truth of Jesus is the way in which we can be fully human. He came to show us what humanity is supposed to look like. The truth of Jesus is what it means to be human. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's life. And it's more than just this gift that he gives us. It's more than just an idea. It's more than just a positive mental attitude. I, I remember when um, growing up, my, my parents, it's probably going back in the 70s, uh, they were in Amway. Did you hear Rich DeVos just died? He was a billionaire. My goodness, selling soap. But anyway, I digress. Um, and so um, there was this lot of positive mental attitude that, that was supposed to change the way that you live. And so every morning... Um, my father suggested that we memorize this line that every morning we would look in the mirror and we'd say, today I'm getting happier, healthier, stronger, wiser, and more prosperous. I have no idea why I remember that. But that was supposed to set me on this trail for life, like good life. The prosperous side, well, I, I must have stopped saying that because that's not quite there yet. But, you know, I'm pretty happy, pretty healthy. I think I'm wise. I got gray around my mouth. 
But see, the life that Jesus is, is more than just, more than just that. It's more than just this zestful expectation of getting through the struggles that we go through every day. The life that Jesus is, is knowing that God is, has reached into our mess and is dwelling with us and among us. And he is embracing and transforming and empowering us to live into the truth of what it means to be a human being in light of the truth of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? And so the life that Jesus is, is a life that you don't need to be socially accepted. You don't need to, to have a thousand friends on Facebook. You don't need to have a hundred million likes. It's, it's free from that need. It's free from the need of accumulating things and stuff as some, as some social uh, barometer on how successful you are. Jesus is hope. Jesus is life with hope. Jesus is the anticipation of what God has planned and wants to do through your life here on earth. Because through Jesus, the very spirit of God lives within those who have put their faith in him. The spirit of God is the catalyst of life. And that's only revealed through Christ himself. God is no longer someone that is removed or distant. He is no longer a mystery. He is revealed. He is accessible. And the invitation from Jesus is walk in this way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And by faith, we can answer that invitation and we are empowered to live the life of Christ. He said, you know the things I'm doing? You can do. You can do even greater things. And I think about that and I'm thinking, man, I haven't really done greater things than Jesus in my life. Where's my faith? Jesus didn't suggest that, hey, you might be able to do some things, try it out. He said, you can do these things and even greater things. Now, we have to really be uh, honest with ourselves and and as Christians. Um, Christianity in in some moments in history has been really dark. And there's been a lot of hurtful, hateful things done in the name of Jesus. And and that's just the truth. And and we can't deny that. Uh, We have to learn from that. And move forward from that. But I will say this. That Christians have altered the course of generations of people. Christians have altered the course of nations. Christians have altered the course of, of entire cultures. Because of the spirit of the Lord that has empowered people to live. We had some friends that went to Ethiopia uh, this year. And... Um, they were talking about uh, churches in rocks. So in the 3rd or 4th century, Christianity was outlawed in Ethiopia, and the king set to killing all the Christians and burning down all the churches. And so these people went into the mountains and carved churches into mountainsides, into rocks. And we complain that it's too hot. Because the spirit of the Lord has been instilled within us to live the life of Christ and not to give up. We don't have to let our hearts be troubled in the no matter what takes place. Think about this. Twelve disciples were with Jesus. And now it's estimated in the world that there are 2.2 billion followers of Christ. 
2.2 billion, that's seven times the size of the United States, are now following Jesus because 12 people got a hold of it, were empowered by the Spirit, and so on. And they told someone, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And we have changed the course of history. Much of it in the positive. That's the life that we've been freely given. The life of Jesus. The life of truth. That through us. Us. Little old Oasis Church. God has offered to the world. The opportunity to experience him. In wholeness and intimacy and abundance. Through us. It's not a bad deal. Because of the life of Christ in us, we can offer to the world to see and experience God through eyes of faith. And when we see and experience the world through eyes of faith, it changes the way we see everything and it changes the way we live. We can know him the same way, with the same intimacy, with the same wholeness as he knows us. Jesus is the unique, sufficient way to God for every person. That's the good news. And see, that's not only our hope, it's our mission. We have to be a people on mission. We have to be willing to take our lumps for the name of Jesus. We have to be willing to to risk social standing, to risk being called names for the sake of Jesus, to share the gospel, to go out and be the light of the world. See, it's not only our hope. He's not only our hope, but he is our mission. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. In, uh, in Isaiah chapter 30, uh, the prophet's talking about how the people have turned away from God and, and uh, you know, they're kind of doing their own thing. And, and then he talks about the grace of God and how God is going to come and restore them. And, and this, this verse always caught my attention, verse 21. And, and this is God's grace in the midst of the rebellion of the people. He said, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying... This is the way. Walk in it. And I've, I've thought about that verse, and especially I've thought about it this week, and I'm wondering how many times have I ignored that voice. This is the way. Walk in it. This is the way. Walk in it. And I brought, it brought me to a place of repentance to go, my goodness, sometimes I, I can hear it and I ignore it because I don't want to walk that way. It's, it's frustrating, or it's inconvenient, or I'm tired. I don't want to have another conversation with someone. I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that. I don't want to write that. I don't want to read this. And there's that voice that's always with us, the Spirit of the Lord. No matter what road you're on, no matter what, this is the way. Walk in it. And we know that that way is Jesus Christ. I was listening to Francis Chan this week, and uh, he, he does this whole teaching about, um, you know, the, the narrow, 
narrow road or the narrow gate and the, you know, uh, what's he say? Um, narrow is the way to life and wide is the road of destruction. Many people go on the wide road. And, and he said that somebody walked up and said, well, you know, Francis, it's not either or. It's, it's, it's not either a narrow or the wide, but there's this middle road. And he's like, I, I don't see that in scripture. And I don't see it either. And I thought for a moment, my goodness, I travel that middle road quite often. I'm not in life, but I'm not going to destruction. I'm going comfortable for Dennis. And God is behind me whispering, there is a way. This is the way. My son is the way. Walk in it. Walk in it. I wonder if we were honest with ourselves and asked the question, in what way have I walked the narrow road or the the middle road, the road that doesn't exist? In what way have I ignored that voice? In what way have I ignored Jesus and his way, his truth, his life, and just wanted to do my own thing? It's comfortable to do it our own way. Sometimes, until it's not. I think we all have to take a long, hard look at ourselves. Come to a place of saying, I'm sorry, God. Don't ever stop whispering. Don't ever stop showing me the way. But strengthen me to walk in it. Strengthen me to walk in your way. Father, we thank you for your grace that continues to tap us and tell us this is the way. Walk in it. Thank you for revealing yourself through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the love that you have that you pour out on your church each and every day. Help us to point people to the way and the truth and the life, your son, Jesus Christ. Let this not be about us anymore, but let it be about you and your kingdom. Let it be, let, would you grow in us a desire, a desire, a brokenness for the people who walk in darkness? And would you strengthen us to show them the light? We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.